If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up, turn it on on your device and head for uh, Titus chapter two. That's where we'll park this morning. Titus chapter two, uh, God willing, we'll get through the entirety of the chapter. And uh, as you go there, uh, just quick little uh, note. We are, are now, some of you are already aware, but we are now live streaming this service every week. So 11 o'clock is being live streamed both on our website and our Facebook page. And so uh, we're doing that for a couple reasons. First of all, for, for you, our faith family uh, here at New Life. Uh, obviously, as we travel, we go on vacation, oftentimes uh, we're sick even. This is an opportunity for you to stay connected, to stay plugged in on what's going on here, body life. And so uh, not only will you get the message live, but you get the whole service live. So you get to worship uh, right along with us. You'll get to hear all the announcements as well as the message. And so would encourage you as you travel, um, as you're sick perhaps to take advantage of that. And then the second reason that we're doing it, uh, and maybe even a more important reason is we all have people in our circles of influence uh, who we know who are unchurched, right? For a variety of reasons. Perhaps they're not yet believers. Uh, perhaps they had a really negative, uh, painful experience at some point in their past in church. So they just kind of disavowed church. And so maybe they're not super keen right away on coming with you on a Sunday morning, but you can just give them a link, right? Text them a link to our website or our Facebook page and just say, hey, no pressure. You can sit in your PJs in your bed, you know, and you can check us out, make sure we're not some kind of weird occult or anything like that. And so really this is just a way for us to continue to expand our digital footprint for the sake of the gospel, right? Because that's, that's our goal here is to help people find and follow Jesus. And so this is just another tool that hopefully will allow us to expand that, that mission and that vision. So FYI, we are live streaming 11 o'clock. Now, Titus, uh, Titus is a letter. You may know if you've been here last week or two, a letter from the apostle Paul to uh, a young man uh, who he was mentoring. Um, unsurprisingly named Titus. And um, he's painting for young Titus this picture uh, or this portrait, as it were, of what a healthy church looks like. And so, uh, so far, we've seen that a healthy church uh, has healthy, godly leaders who do a couple of things primarily. Firstly, they, they teach the gospel. So, so primarily, a healthy church has to have godly leaders who are not afraid to preach the true gospel, to teach the true gospel. And then secondly, they are to guard against kind of distorted, uh, perverted, kind of false gospels that would either try to add to the gospel of Jesus or on the other side of the equation, try to subtract from the gospel of Jesus. And that uh, throughout any generation, uh, throughout the course of history, those are the two temptations, right? Legalism on the one hand and license on the other hand. And so uh, for some of us, we grew up in a very uh, kind of legalistic church culture. So many of you will resonate with this. So for a lot of you, you probably grew up and you heard something like this. If you want Jesus to love you, then you can't drink, smoke, cuss, or watch R-rated movies, right? That was kind of the deal. Like if you want Jesus to love you, um, then you gotta do, not do those things. And if you do those things, he's probably not gonna love you. So that's, that's legalism, and uh, sure, we wanna live a holy life, but when we begin to add those legalistic categories or rules to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can very quickly end up in this dangerous, kind of distorted, legalistic, religious gospel, which is not at all what Jesus came to preach, right? Now, on the other extreme, we have people that will swing the pendulum all the way from legalism all the way over here to what we like to call license, 
You know what license is? License is kind of like this idea that, hey, okay, I understand this gospel, that Jesus has saved me, that he's gonna forgive me of my sins, both past, present, and future. And because he's promised to forgive me because of what he's done for me on the cross and the empty tomb, then I'm just gonna live like hell, right? If he's gonna forgive me anyway, I'm just gonna do whatever I want, whenever I want, and I'm just gonna trust that he's gonna forgive me. Well, that also is a perversion of the gospel, right? So legalism, license, both perversions of the gospel. And Paul brings us back to center to the true gospel of Jesus. And today we're going to see that a healthy church is one that doesn't just believe the gospel intellectually, rightly, but one that actually lives the gospel out faithfully. See, so many, so many followers of, of Christ have uh, this idea that the gospel, right? The gospel is this good news uh, that Jesus came on a rescue mission to save sinners like you and me. But we have this idea that the gospel is just for salvation only. The trouble with that is the gospel is actually what also transforms our lives after salvation. See, uh, our lives as followers of Jesus should be distinctly marked by a certain way of life. And many of us have kind of, I think we've kind of missed the boat on this because there, there was some point in our lives where we accepted intellectually, we believed that the gospel was true, but we stopped that salvation. Like we, we never allowed the gospel to like bleed into our everyday lives in a way that would actually transform and change the way that we live our lives. And so Paul is writing to Titus, who, as you know, is in this really crazy, wicked culture on the island of Crete. And Paul knows that the temptation for Titus and these new believers on the island of Crete is probably, the temptation is probably going to be to make the gospel more palatable to the culture around them. So the temptation for Titus and these young Christians likely is going to be to compromise. Now, that'd be easy to do 2,000 years ago place like Crete. And frankly, it'd be really easy to do in a place like America in 2018, right? And so that's the very first thing that Paul says right here to Titus in chapter two. So let's go. Uh, Chapter two, verse one, this is what he says. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now this reference, sound doctrine, is a specific reference that Paul uses for the gospel. So he's saying, Titus, make sure that you're teaching aligns with the gospel. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that Paul was addressing some false teachers that infiltrated the church. They were creating chaos. They were creating a mess in these young churches by teaching a distorted gospel, right? They were teaching that, that uh, like legalism, like you need Jesus, but you need to follow all these other religious rules for Jesus to love you. And Paul is contrasting that false teaching for Titus by saying, Titus, as for you, you teach the gospel, You stand firm. You teach sound doctrine. Don't deviate, Titus. Don't add to the gospel of grace and don't subtract from the gospel of grace. You remain steadfast. Come hell or high water, you preach the crucified and risen Jesus as the pathway to peace with God and freedom in this life and in eternity. So he's saying, Titus, man, don't don't compromise in a culture that demands compromise. As for you, you teach the gospel. You remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus. And now Paul is going to tell Titus what a godly life changed by the gospel uh, ought to look like. 
And see what Paul is going to be doing for us here is he's going to be connecting for us what we see all throughout the scriptures and that's this connection between belief and behavior. So what we say we believe and how we actually live out our lives, those two things in the Christian worldview are inseparable, right? And so he's going to break it down for us uh, by life stage and gender, which is uh, actually really helpful, healthy and helpful to us, I think. And he's going to start with older men. Now, I know in our culture, uh, no, nobody considers themselves old anymore. I realize that. And so you, you constantly hear things like, well, 50's the new 40, 60's the new 50, pretty soon it'll be 110 is the new 90, and uh, that's just kind of the way our culture is. I don't really get it, but nobody wants to be old these days. And uh, I don't know uh, that Paul had a certain age in mind here, but he does seem to have the idea of men who are sort of in the final season of life. So they're kind of in that, that fourth quarter of their life. So the stage of life, perhaps, where the kids are grown, kids are out of the house, maybe they're in retirement or retirement is on the horizon. Uh, he's not speaking to, to young men. He'll get to, to young men in a minute, but he starts with older men. In verse two, this is what he says. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. And so Paul says, older man, this is what it should look like for you to follow Jesus. You've lived life. You have the scars of life to prove it. You've been walking with Jesus now for a long time, for a period of years. Perhaps you're in this season of life where you have more freedom. So maybe you have uh, financial freedom that you didn't have in your youth. Perhaps you have more freedom with your time. And so Paul is challenging these older men, these older men who are believers in the church in Crete. He's saying, listen, maybe you ought to consider, consider that God has given you this freedom primarily to advance his kingdom and make disciples of Jesus. You know, I, I really struggle with this cultural idea, this American cultural idea of Retirement, and I, and I struggle with it because this idea in our culture of retirement being like this really long vacation and like, uh, you know, two or three decades of just self-indulgence, I, I struggle with that concept because I just don't see that concept in Scripture, like at all, <laughs> ever. Now, no, listen, I, I understand career retirement uh, there comes a time for us all in the workforce, in the work world, where it is time. It's time to pass the baton off professionally, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying, I don't think Paul is saying you should never retire from a career. What I am saying, and I think Paul is saying to the older man, is you never retire from being a Christian. You never retire from being a disciple. You never, ever retire from advancing the kingdom of Jesus and making disciples, like ever doesn't matter if you're 85 years old, 90 years old, you've been retired for 30 years, you are not finished yet. God is not done with you. There is a purpose for your life, and your life is to be about advancing the kingdom of Jesus. And so I would just say to our older man here at New Life, yes, go to the beach, yes, go play golf, yes, go visit your grandkids in California, all that good stuff, but be about what Paul is telling Titus right here. Amen. Older man, look, we need you. We need you big time. The kingdom needs you. Our young men need you. Don't check out now in this season of your life. As a pastor, one of my 
hands down, one of my biggest heartbreaks is dealing with uh, broken marriages and specifically broken marriages and broken families among our, our young Christians. Just young people that have absolutely train wrecked their lives. And oftentimes, as I deal with these situations, I wonder to myself, like, what would it be different? How would it be different if our older men were taking our younger men under their wing? Like just coming alongside them and saying, look, this is how you love your wife when she seems really unlovable to you. This is how you walk in purity as a man throughout the course of your life. This is how you, this is how you teach your kids about Jesus. This is how you work really hard in a job that you hate without losing your mind. Like I just wonder like, how different things would be if our older men were investing in our younger men in this way. I think things would be vastly different. And Paul is saying, listen, older men, don't check out. Don't check out. Finish strong, finish the race. How do you do that? He tells us, he says, look, you be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. He repeats this refrain, self-controlled, four times in just chapter two alone. This is a big theme for the Apostle Paul when he talks about Christian living, self-control. So older man, in other words, he's saying, don't be controlled by sin. Be sound in your faith. Be sound in your love. Be steadfast. In other words, don't coast in your golden years. Don't coast spiritually in your golden years. Be faithful to the end. Through good times, through bad times, let your life exemplify the gospel to the next generation. Be an example to the next generation, to the younger men who are following Jesus. So the message of your life as an older godly man should be, hey, look, young guys, you wanna follow Jesus? Watch my life. Watch the way that I interact with my wife. Watch the way that I've raised my kids and interact with my grandkids. If you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus, come alongside me. Watch my life. That should be the message of older men to younger men in the church. And then Paul moves to older women. And I should tread very carefully here. He's, <laughs> Paul, Paul's not saying, he's not saying elderly women. And so ladies, please don't, don't tune out just because you don't consider yourself old. Right, so maybe, maybe it'd be easier to think of the term mature. I like that term, don't you? Not old, mature. Mature women. And I know we're a very young church. We don't have any old ladies here. All of our, all of our ladies here are no older than 39. Some of you have just celebrated your 39th a few times in the past, and that's, and that's fine. But even still, if you're in that camp, you don't consider yourself old, uh, tune in. This is important for us uh, to hear as a, as a church body, particularly for our more mature women. Verse three, he says, older women or mature women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And so the first thing that Paul says is, hey, mature ladies, you are to be, you are to be reverent in behavior. Now, this was a term reverent for behavior that was used uh, for the idea of holiness, it's this idea of living a sacred life that's worthy of the gospel. Right? So like, just like this inner beauty of like a godly, mature woman that's walked faithfully with Jesus for years and years and years. And so when I think of that, I think of some of our ladies right here at New Life who have walked with Christ for years, perhaps decades. And there's just this, this sacred beauty, this aroma of Jesus exuding from their lives. And it's beautiful. 
right? Just the way that they love other people, the way that they love Jesus and follow Jesus. Paul says, older women, walk this path. Live this life. He says, listen, don't, don't be slanderers. The word for slander here in the Greek is actually diabolos, which is where we get the word Satan or devil, right? Just, just this idea of using our tongues for evil, to tear people down, to wound people, to slander them, to gossip about them behind their backs. Our tongues can cause great harm and evil. Now, to be sure, this can also be a temptation for men. We're not exempt from this temptation at all. But Paul, at least in this case, seems to be hinting at the fact that this sin is at times particularly enticing to women. And so Paul is addressing the ladies here and he says, ladies, older ladies, more mature ladies, guard your tongues. Guard your tongues. Like your speech should be holy. And then he says, oh, by the way, we're talking about your mouth. You can also guard your mouth by not being a slave to much wine. In other words, don't, men, don't spend your, your latter years like just like chasing a buzz or going to parties on the weekend or being a drunk. Like your life should be a picture, a sacred picture of the gospel. Like let your life just be this beautifully sacred picture of the gospel of Jesus' mature ladies. Why? Because the young ladies need to see this. Like they don't, the young ladies don't just need to read about this lifestyle, like in the Bible, in the book of Titus. They need to see it fleshed out in your life. Like what does it look like to actually have a godly marriage? What's it look like in the midst of a chaotic life to raise your kids to know and love Jesus? What does it look like to remain faithful to the Lord and faithful to your family? Yes, they need to read about, read about it, but they need to see it lived out in your life. Pick up in the middle of verse three. Paul says, they, the more mature women, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. So he says, hey, look, the older women are to teach what is good to the younger women. And the word for teach here, this isn't like uh, teaching in a classroom. So Paul's not saying, hey, every older lady who loves Jesus should have like a lecture styled uh, Bible class in their homes on Friday night. Rather, this word for teach carries the connotation of teaching by living life together. Living life with someone, like one-on-one, -on -one, life on life. This is, Paul is advocating for here creating a discipleship culture within a church, right? Where older men are taking the younger man under their wings. Older women are intentionally taking the younger women under their wings, right? And showing them how to live a godly life in the practical things of life. So Paul essentially says, hey, look, more mature women show the younger women how to be godly wives and mothers by loving their husbands well and by loving their kids well. Now, maybe you're a husband out there and you're thinking, well, what? why does she have to learn how to love me well? <laughs> well, guys, believe it or not, you're not always very lovable. I don't know if that's shocking news to you, but oftentimes you're not very lovable, especially for some of you. Some of you are far more unlovable than others of you. And so it takes some training. It takes some coaching. It takes some mentoring, right? In order to, for your wife to love you well in a godly way. And kids, we, we love our kids here at New Life. Kids are cute. Kids are awesome. But moms and dads, some days it's hard, is it not? It's just hard. I come home some days and Cheryl, God bless her little sweet soul, 
the kids have been fighting all day and something, you know, like the oven broke or the dog threw up on the couch or, you know, I left my socks by the dirty hamper again. And I walk in the door and she looks like she's ready just like to stab somebody. Like she, she needs, she doesn't need me in that moment. She needs a godly, mature woman to walk her through those days so she doesn't suffocate me in my sleep, right? <laughs> Young women, they need that. They, they need older women in their lives to model that for them, this godly life that Paul is exhorting us to walk in. See, this idea of teaching and training, that's, that's what we call discipleship here, right? That's what biblical discipleship is. And the task of discipleship, Paul is saying here, is not exclusively for like professional Christians. Did you know that? Like the task of discipleship, like that mandate for believers, it's not just for missionaries. It's not just for pastors or people that, you know, went to seminary or whatever. Like this is for every single follower of Jesus. We each have a role to play in multiplying disciples of Jesus. And Paul says, hey, listen, beyond teaching these young women to love their husbands in a godly way and to love their children in a godly way, you need to teach them to be self-controlled. Here that term is again, right? Paul's hitting it again and again and again and again as he describes the godly Christian life. Self-control, self-control, self-control. He says, teach them to be pure. It's the idea of sexual purity. We tend to think of this as primarily a problem for young men. It's not. This is a problem that we, we all can deal with, we all struggle with at times. And in the culture in Crete, which by the way is not so different from our own culture, like this, this idea that Paul is proposing of this idea of sex as being something sacred, something that unites two people at the soul level that should be saved for the context of marriage between a husband and a wife, like this would have been a really radical idea in Crete 2000 years ago. And it's really, it's kind of a radical idea today in our culture, isn't it? And Paul is saying as followers of Jesus, we choose a different pathway than our culture gives us. We choose a different life. It's a better pathway. It's a better life. And the reality is even secular studies, study after study after study, has shown that people that live within God's design for sexual flourishing are happier in their relationships, they have healthier relationships, and they have far lower rates of divorce. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, young women, if you love Jesus, seek purity. Follow him with your lives. Be self-disciplined. And then Paul says, older women are to teach young women to work at home, to be kind and submissive to their husbands. Now, those verses have caused an absolute uproar in our culture. So, uh, you know, if you're, uh, if you're here and you're a believer and you have a lot of friends or some friends that are not believers, if they wanna bag on Christianity, good chance they're gonna come to this particular passage and they're gonna say, see, look, Christianity is a sexist, it's a chauvinistic philosophy that hates women. You've probably heard that, haven't you? And they say stuff like this because they don't understand this. Firstly, Paul is teaching that women are to work at home. And Paul was not saying when he said that, that women should never work outside the home. Paul was not saying that women shouldn't have careers. In fact, in Proverbs 31, which is like the portrait of a godly woman, Proverbs 31 describes this godly woman as not only caring for the home, but of a woman who's an entrepreneur, 
who's creating and selling and earning money. This is a professional woman. Paul is simply saying here, teach the young women, whether they work inside the home or outside the home, teach them not to neglect the home. Right? We talked about this just a few weeks ago. Our homes are our first mission field. This is of primary importance for all of us as believers. We must not neglect our homes. We must not neglect the discipleship of our own children. And that's priority number one for all of us as believers, particularly in this case, for young believing women who are married and have young children in the home. The other thing that people will absolutely go nuts over here is Paul's instruction for young women to be submissive to their husbands, right? People lose their minds in our culture, like our culture that's just saturated in individualism. But again, that's because our culture has absolutely perverted the concept of submission. Like biblical submission has absolutely nothing to do with value or equality at all. Nothing at all. I mean, look, look at God himself. Consider the Trinity, right? We see in the scriptures, we see the Son, Jesus, submitting to the will of the Father, right? We saw, see that in the garden the night before the crucifixion. And then after that, we see the Son sending the Spirit. So we see the Holy Spirit willingly submitting to the Son. So even in the Trinity, we have this beautiful picture of godly submission, equal value, but totally different roles, functioning flawlessly and beautifully. And by the way, in Ephesians 5, Paul uses this chapter and he talks about the Christian home and he addresses marriage specifically. In Ephesians 5, he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved his bride, the church, and gave himself for her. And so husbands, we, man, we, are, to, we are to love and to serve our wives in such a selfless and sacrificial way that her following us would just be like the natural overflow of our radical, sacrificial love for her. This is actually a beautiful picture. Paul is not some male chauvinist who hates women. So older women, he says, model the gospel for the younger women in marriage and in motherhood. Teach them how to make their home beautiful for the sake of the gospel. Why? And he tells us exactly why. He says, so that the word of God would not be reviled. In other words, Christian. Our lives should be lived in such a way that our non-Christian friends could, could look into our lives, they could peer into our lives, and they would think to themselves, wow. Like, I don't understand all the stuff that they believe, but the way that they live is beautiful. They believe some hard stuff, but the way that they live is powerful and pure and beautiful. And in turn, we could say yes. And that's because we have a powerful and pure and beautiful God. And you can know him too. So that's the first truth that I want you to leave with this morning. Number one, your words are only as credible as the life you live, Christian. Your words are only as credible as the life that you live. When our lives don't match our words, the gospel of Jesus is reviled which means that people can look in our lives and they can say, yeah, 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 he talks a really good game, but look at the way he lives his, wife, his life. Look at the way he treats his wife. Look at the way he neglects his kids. He's just another hypocrite. I don't need that in my life. Your words are always only as credible as the way that you live your life. And then in verse six, he hits young men, right? He says, likewise, urge the younger men 
to be self-controlled. Now, young man, we, we, get, we get one word from Paul. That's all we get. He says, be self-controlled. Don't let your passions dominate you in your youth, right? Because in our youth, our passions can run strong, right? That appetite to achieve and to compete, the hunger for power and prestige and money and say, like, all that stuff can easily overwhelm us if we are not intentional in our self-discipline. Young man, we must, we must bridle our passions. And Paul speaks of this for himself in 1 Corinthians chapter nine. This will be on the screens for you. Listen as Paul describes his own journey. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or prize or medal, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. And listen to verse 27. This is the apostle Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament. This is describing his own walk with Jesus. He says, verse 27, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And that should be the fear for all of us, right? That our lives don't match up with our words and we would disqualify ourselves in this race. And Paul is saying, young men, you need to understand that this idea of self-discipline and holiness in your life, this doesn't happen by accident. As one famous sports coach put it, he said, in life you can either choose the pain of discipline or you can choose the pain of disappointment. You're gonna have pain in your life. You get to choose which kind of pain you wanna have. In other words, if my, my life's goal is to have like a washboard six-pack abs, which clearly that is not my primary goal in life, but if it were, I could either choose the pain of discipline in my diet and exercise, right? Or I can choose the pain of disappointment when I look in the mirror every morning and instead of seeing a six pack, I see a keg flopping out over my shorts, right? Pain of discipline, pain of disappointment. The choice is yours, right? We get to choose one or the other, but you're gonna get one. You say, Chris, I'm a young guy and this just seems impossible to me, man. Tried, tried, addicted to porn, can't control my diet, I can't control my anger problem, I'm struggling with all these areas in my life. And listen, I'll be the first to say, this, this isn't easy. But the truth of the matter is nothing in life worth having is ever easy. Like Self-control, according to the scriptures, is actually a fruit of the Spirit. Which means, first of all, you have to have the Holy Spirit in your life to be able to live this kind of life that Paul is calling us to. And we only get the Holy Spirit when we follow Jesus. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, step one is follow Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. And then secondly, we have to choose to wake up and walk in the Spirit every single day of our lives. This is a conscious decision that we make every single day, which means we have to carve out time in our busy schedule to read the Word, to get along with God, to spend time in prayer, to invite brothers into our lives, to hold us accountable. Like all of that, this encompasses all of that. When Paul says, hey, young men, be self-controlled, live self-controlled lives worthy of the gospel. And then Paul switches back and he starts speaking to Titus specifically 
in verse seven, and he says this, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. He's going back to how you live your life, right? Titus, show yourself, model the gospel, and then he says, in your teaching as well. So we have the picture there, his life and his words. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. He's saying, Titus, make sure your life matches your words. Make sure your life matches your word, young brother. Model the gospel. Don't just teach the gospel. Show these boys in Crete how to live it out. And what would you think if I, uh, I got up here one Sunday and I was just... I was just laying it out there, man. I was railing on something, and let's say I was, I was preaching on like Christian community or something like that. Like, man, you really, if you wanna walk with Jesus, if you wanna be a disciple, if you wanna grow the way God has designed you to grow in your spiritual journey, like you need a Christian community, like to come around side of you and to help you and to pray for you and to hold you accountable, all these things. And I got done preaching it, and just like imagine that you came up to me afterwards and you're like, man, Chris, that was a really good sermon. I feel very convicted about that. I know I need Christian community in my life. And I'm just wondering, like, what community group are you in? Like, just imagine in that moment, I said, you know what? I'm like, I'm kind of a spiritual kingpin. And so, uh, you know, this is really for like spiritual peasants like you. It's not, it's not really for me. Like, I'm on another level. This is for peasants like you. Like, how much credibility do I have if I don't live out what I preach? None, zero, like, like you probably would never come back here again and you probably shouldn't, right? And, and we're, what Paul is saying is, look, we're we all to live in such a way that the opponents of our faith would be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Like they could examine our lives and look for stuff and come up empty-handed, like I got nothing. I got nothing on them. Like they preach it and they actually live what they believe. Church, I think Paul is just saying here, look, if people in our lives are going to stumble over the gospel, let them stumble over the gospel, not our hypocritical, half-baked Christian lives. Let them stumble over the gospel, not our hypocrisy. And then he moves on to verse nine. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, that just means stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, we obviously don't have bond servants today in our culture. I think the equivalent for us would be our jobs, our careers. And Paul is, is saying, look, this is how Christian employees can live a godly life at work. He says, work hard. Do a pleasing job. Don't be argumentative or divisive. Don't pilfer or steal. In other words, be an honest person. Be a person of integrity in how you work. And then he tells us why we should do this. He says, so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Believer, everything that we do should adorn, should make beautiful the gospel of Jesus. In our work, our work ethic, how we work, the attitude that we have at work, in our relationships, in our marriages, with our kids, with our neighbors, in our conduct, by what we do and how we live, by what we watch, by what we listen to, in our speech, all of it to make Jesus beautiful to the world around us. 
So here's the second truth this morning. Number two, believer, your life impacts how people see God. It does. Now you may not like that fact. You may wish that that weren't true, but it is true. Your life impacts how other people see God. And this was clearly on the front of Paul's mind as he's writing this to Titus. Our non-Christian friends are watching us. And they are drawing conclusions about Christianity based on how we live our lives. Not the words that we speak, about how we live our lives. And so my question for you is, what are they learning about God by watching your life right now? What are you preaching? What's the sermon that you're preaching with your life? By how you work in your job by how you interact with your spouse, by how you treat and raise your children, by how you speak, what you speak about, what is your life teaching other people right now about the glory of Jesus? And then he finishes out with one thought beginning in verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, and this is a reference to Jesus, has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Guys, that's God's heart. It's God's heart to see people come to faith, to see people find hope and freedom and forgiveness through Jesus. That's his hope, that's his desire for all people. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. There's that idea again, self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Titus. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Paul finishes this section, this chapter with the gospel. Why do you suppose that he goes back to the gospel to close this out? I think it's because living this life that he just described is impossible without the gospel. It is impossible. We need to be reminded that in all of our failures, and we all fail so many times, we need to remind ourselves that in the middle of that, as Paul says in verse 14, Jesus came to redeem us. He came to purchase for himself a people that would reflect him. And so we've been saved from some things. And I think oftentimes in church, we're really good at talking about what Jesus saved us from. And those things are true. That Jesus has saved us from sin and he saved us from death and he saved us from hell. And that's all true and it's good and we should talk about that. But Jesus didn't just save us from things. He also saved us to something. He saved us into a life that makes him beautiful and winsome to the world around us. And that's our last point this morning. Jesus saves us, believer, into a life that makes him beautiful to the world around us. He did not just save us from stuff. He saved us into this life that would make him beautiful to people around us. As we close and the band comes, I wanna just encourage you to bow your heads with me for a moment. And the question that I'd like to just kind of leave you with as you leave here and marinate on it, as a believer, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, what does your life look like right now? 
Are you living for him? Really living for him in your work, in your, in your marriage, in your, in your conduct, in your speech? Like would people look into your life, would they gaze into your life and would they say with their first thought, with their first inclination be, man, that dude, that lady, man, they are all about Jesus. And maybe they're not perfect, but man, she's chasing hard after Jesus. Man, he's chasing hard after Jesus. And I don't understand all of it, but it is attractive. It is compelling. I want to know more about this God whose people live in this beautiful, sacred way. And Paul says, declare these things, Titus. Declare these things. Declare them with your words. Declare them with your life. Try to speak the gospel, but also live the gospel. Make Jesus beautiful to the world around you. Let me pray for us. Father, for the one who perhaps is here this morning and they don't know you, whether they're a church person or a religious person or not, none of that really ultimately matters. But if somebody were just honest in this moment of quiet, say, man, I've never really had my life changed by Jesus. I know some of the answers. My life has never been rocked and changed by Jesus. God, for that person who's here this morning in this room, I just pray that you would draw them in a powerful way Father, would you woo them? Would you show them? Give them a glimpse, as the song that we just sang, give them a glimpse of your beauty so that they would come to you that would find their life, their real life in you, in Jesus. And Father, for those of us who have walked this pathway for years with you, for those of us maybe who have walked with you for decades, God, would you remind us every day that our life's purpose is to love you and to love others by making disciples. And God, we can, we can only do that as we live this authentic life that matches our message. And God, my confession, I think our collective confession as a faith family here at New Life would be, we can't do it alone. We cannot live this way in our own strength. And so, God, we need you. We need you every single minute of every single day. God, would you teach us what it looks like to to walk by your spirit, to walk in your spirit, God, to, to love you more than we love everything else in this world. God, and would you do that in our hearts? Would you do that in our minds, in our lives, for our good, for your glory, as we make you beautiful to the world around us? We ask it in the name that gives life, hope, and freedom. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, would you stand with me as we sing?